Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. I realize there's a regular episode that's coming out on Monday, but last night my wife and I watched the finale, the series finale of The Good Place on NBC, and it was kind of a little existential crisis, mini crisis for me, and a bunch of other friends were crying about it and texting and like just seemed like people need to talk about this. Uh, and so what I decided to do was record an emergency podcast with my friends Danielle and Crispin. So this is just kind of a bonus episode, and we get into a lot of stuff on that show, afterlife questions. Uh, but if you don't want it spoiled, and also if you haven't watched the show and you don't care, um, we do a spoiler section until around 23 minutes, and then I play like 40 seconds of the theme song, which sounds a little bit like this. So if you do not want the show spoiled, skip ahead to 23 minutes, uh, maybe 22.45, something like that, and you can not have anything spoiled about the finale. Uh, but either way, I think people will find this interesting. A lot of big questions come up in that show. A lot of interesting stuff with the uh, finale, questions about mortality, infinity and eternity, hell, attachment, all that good stuff. So here we go. Thank you. 
Danielle and Crispin Mayfield, hosts of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast uh, and uh, thinkers, writers, therapists. Well, one one therapist. Uh, thank you guys for doing this. I don't I listen to a lot of shows that have like emergency pods, you know, like the Oscar nominations just came out and there's an emergency pod. I don't do that kind of thing, but this might be my first one. It's yeah, emergen- this is an emergency. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the good play the good place finale has aired. It messed a lot of us up. Oh yeah. And we gotta mm-hmm. process it. Oh yeah. It really messed me up. Um the first thing I need to say is so we're not only gonna talk about the good place. We're also gonna get into some stuff about afterlife and death and whatever. So at some point, uh we will stop talking about the good place. I'm gonna make a note of where that is, and then I will have already said in the intro. That's the place to skip to, so that's what we're doing. So mm-hmm. if you don't want it spoiled, skip ahead to the thing that I said earlier in the introduction. That's where you should go. And I won't know where that is until it happens. In fact, now we're kind of already getting in to the good place and Jeremy Baramies and the weirdness of time. And Yeah, what is time? What yeah. is time? Oh, yeah. So we're going to – it aired. This was uh, – my wife and I saw it last night. Um, you guys maybe saw it Thursday? We saw it Friday morning. Friday morning. Friday morning. Okay. You guys, uh, as I understand it, your story was you ended up crying in a restaurant together about it? Well, yeah. I mean, I ended up crying. So we watched it Friday morning, and then I cried over a breakfast burrito. So. (laughs) Mine mine was like, um, I wasn't crying. I thought about crying a couple times. After it ended, like, I was, it was like early enough in the evening that, we were going to watch, you know, like another show or something before bed. And I was just like, I can't, we can't watch anything right now. Like I'm on some kind of sacred ground here, but it, in kind of a bad way, uh, we'll get into that. <laughs> Soul crushing <laughs> sacred ground. He kind of, yeah. Like, like a, it felt a little bit like a losing part of my religion moment. Uh, I'm, I'm sure not all of it, but it was like, it felt, it felt really important and weird and uncomfortable and immediately afterward i had this need to process it i texted i think i texted you guys last night and i texted a couple other friends and i was talking with jaffrey about it and trying to figure out what am i feeling right now why am i feeling so strongly about this and and later on i can get into um some other stuff it reminded me of feeling in the past but let's just First of all, we got to start with probably in description of what happened uh, so that, you know, because there's some people who don't care about the show. They don't care about having it spoiled and we need them to know what we're talking about. Would one of you like to take the floor for the uh, brief description of how this series wrapped up? We'll assume that you know something about The Good Place. Here, I'll do that. And then you guys talk about the ending. So The Good Place okay. is a comedy created by Michael Schur, who was involved in The Office and parks and rack and stuff um it it does a lot of philosophy like basically these people they go to where they think is heaven at the beginning of the first season it's it's a comedy about the afterlife and through a bunch of hijinks throughout the series they are tasked with basically saving humanity saving the world from the perspective of the afterlife uh and then in the finale they wrap it all up quite interestingly Crispin or Danielle, you I've been talking too much. So one of you start. Yeah, I think the way the show started was it really 
was about how to be a good person, yeah. right? And this fundamental belief that Mike Shore has that people can learn to become better people, right? And that's kind of like where the hope for humanity now rests. Are we going to choose to live with our neighbors in mind, right? And so as a Christian, I'm very drawn to that idea. Uh, the ending was fascinating because sort of season two and three really laid out how um, – the afterlife system was fundamentally flawed, meaning that most humans could not ever get into the good place. So most humans were going to be consigned to the bad place of eternal conscious torment. That was very funny. And the writers had a lot of fun talking about that. And then this last season sort of ends with these four humans that we've come to know and love who are very flawed. They end up basically saving all of humanity and creating a system where people can learn to become better and everybody basically gets to the good place unless i miss something it's kind of a purgatorial thing right they set up basically a purgatory system where sort of like they experienced in the first episode uh or they thought they were experiencing where you know they they get a chance to improve because they improved each other in their experiences with each other in the afterlife and so they're going to give people that experience and it does seem to be quite redemptive, right? Like it, uh, a lot of people make it in. That, that's kind of what we know. I don't know that we know that everyone makes it in. Okay. I'm not sure that they were explicit about that. I don't remember that. But certainly a lot more people are making yeah. it in than were under the old system, right? And it's a very nice and very fun purgatory. Yes, it is. It's a good, it's a fun right? purgatory. You get to do whatever <laughs> you want. Crispin, what else, what would you say? Yeah, I think uh, that it... I mean, part of it is it looks at how like our what really struck me is realizing that this shift happened because we live in a in a society where you I don't want to say you can't but every decision you make is wrapped up in these unethical systems right. which I loved that point so yeah that's like a big part of season three or something like that where uh-huh. they realize everyone's going to the bad place because even if you try everything like you're complicit in. Just tons of unethical stuff, even if you didn't choose it. And yeah, and that that's also a really interesting aspect of the show of that idea of how complicity has risen so much in a globally connected culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something that I'm sure the two of you guys think about all the time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. knowing you. Yeah, but I think the big twist, right, of this ending and and what I didn't really see coming is all along we've sort of been with these four human characters hoping they get to the good place and then they do. But that's not exactly where it ends, right? And so I think that's the part that really got to all of us as we watch the show is we get to see them go to the good place, place and then we get to see them... I don't I don't know how you would describe it. Well, it's, leave? I mean, it's even recognizing that when they first get there, it's very apparent that that like this isn't a positive thing. What Which, do you mean? Like they show up and all these like philosophers and ethicists and like people throughout the world have basically like just numbed themselves because of like just centuries and centuries of pleasure yeah. where they're just like kind of non-people. Right. And so what they have to do, what they basically realize is that it's not really heaven if it never ends on this schema. And so they make they make like a kind of a death with dignity uh, option as part of their plan. 
So you make it to the good place, and then you get to be in the good place as long as you want. And then when you're done, you go, and you sort of meld back into the universe. In this sense, I mean, it's kind of a – it's brilliant from a writing perspective. I, I, it's probably the best ending of a series – one of the best endings of a series I can ever remember up there with yeah. Breaking Bad and whatever. Um, but it, uh, it's kind of a melding of Western and Eastern ideas in that sense. So you have your purgatory and your heaven and your hell, and then when all that's kind of used up, you've got your Eastern fold back into the ocean kind of a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. The wave in the, in probably the most moving part, Chidi gives a speech about you know the way the ocean takes the wave back, and for a while that water was a wave, and now it's just part of the ocean, and the ocean will do with it whatever it does. Uh, so that's kind of that's what happens in the show. Um, let's talk about our reactions to it. I think my what I think what was impacting me is gonna be quite different than what was impacting you guys. But I've already talked too much thus far. So let's start with what impacted you. And my question is, Crispin, why were you crying into your (laughs) breakfast burrito? Well, because that's a big question. Um, I was just the, the entire time I'm watching these people, right? And they come to this point, people that I'm invested in. And they're like, yeah, I'm done. And they're ready to step through this doorway and become part of the universe. And I've never understood that for one. Like this, this is a a theme in a lot of movies where it's like things end and that's okay. And I've never been able to accept that. Um, Mm. But I also looking at my own history, I have some trauma, some attachment trauma growing up. Um, And Bowlby, who's the father of attachment theory, talks about how, like, when you're a kid um, and you have these experiences of feeling severely disconnected with your parent, uh, that that's a type of grief. Um, And it just he says basically like throughout the rest of your life, it's easy for that to get triggered. (laughs) And so I think that's like totally what happened. And it's so hard for me to imagine like ever wanting to end my life. And that was what was really striking that I think we didn't quite explain. We, we explained that they're able to, to end their lives. But what was most striking to me is they get to this point where they feel at peace and like, I'm just ready. They're ready to end it. Right. Yeah. Which is like, that part was so surprising to me. And Eleanor, I really resonated with that because everybody else is like, I'm ready to go. And she's like, I don't want to be, you know, I've been alone so much of my life. I don't want to be alone, which was, yeah, a lot of my tears. Um, But it's, yeah, it's just really hard for me to comprehend someone wanting to get to that point where they're ready. Because in my mind, as much as I understand that it's, you know, they're, potentially losing their consciousness it just feels like this loss like the whole episode over and over i just like felt this like knot in my stomach of loss over and over okay can i say something so while i was watching it i was crying the whole time and like sometimes it was sad tears sometimes it was happy tears um it was it was a mix and i was watching it as a reflection on how we are traumatized by our life on Earth, by both the situations we're born into and the relationships we are born into. And Crispin is really into attachment theory, and he's taught me a little bit about it. And I think 
every main character in The Good Place, their relationship to their parents is a, is a huge part of their story, and it's really explored. Mm-hmm. And explores how it messes up these these characters, right? And so a part of being in this good place purgatory is having those relationships restored and having people be able to connect with people in their lives. And that's where I think the peace comes from. I think they are saturated in like healthy relationships to the point where they finally don't feel disconnection. Yeah. Does that make sense? mm -hmm. They have actually healed all their pain, all their wounds. And, right. and that's the main thing that people want to talk about. Maybe we should talk about this later in the episode is what do we do about bad people who hurt us in mm. the afterlife? And I think this show. Great. Oh, my gosh. Did an incredible job with dealing with that. That's mm-hmm. great. I'm going to I'm going to note that for a later thing. Uh, what do we do with bad people who hurt us? Who hurt us or others? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the afterlife. Yes. Great. OK. But we can talk about that without. You know, after we are done with spoilers. Um, And in fact, we can talk about my reaction without any spoilers, because mine did not have to do with the move they made at the end, really. But let's talk about that move. So that's something that we got to talk about. So this idea that something actually isn't good if it goes on indefinitely, moment by moment, forever. I mean, the first thing to say here, I think, is that, look, it's a show with people actors right so they they can't really imagine an afterlife scenario that doesn't kind of look like regular life that moves in time with language people communicating the same language like you obviously have to suspend disbelief it's a comedy right so in that sense it the afterlife in the good place has to be a moment by moment sequential time thing because it's a show right that Mm -hmm. they're recording with people talking so that's a limitation in terms of like you could imagine something that's not that way but they can't imagine something that's not that way for this show so on like given that that it has to be sequential moment by moment what they came up with in the writer's room was you know what it's not bad it's not good to just go on indefinitely moment by moment forever just getting what you want that would be meaningless after a while uh, what do you guys think about sort of that? That's the that's the big twist. That's the turn in the in the last two episodes. And I I mean it's incredibly interesting. I'm I'm kind of on. I guess it's I'm kind of on board if it's like life, if the afterlife is like life sufficiently. What was your guys' reaction to that? Yeah, I think they Chidi says like in the very beginning of this final chapter that. Life without mortality is meaningless. And so that is definitely what they are going for. And so when I was watching it, so I'm someone who almost has died twice, both in childbirth. And so that was really a unique situation because you're like bringing life into the world. And then you're also having to really face um, the fact that you could you could be leaving and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, there's no one else who can go through that experience with you. You are truly and utterly alone. And I grew up a Christian where I was really told that heaven is a place you want to go. It's going to be awesome. Every Christian should be very excited to go there. And like in your final days, God will be with you. 
Well, when I was like, my body was literally failing on me and I was only being kept alive by these machines in a hospital, I felt very alone and I felt this overwhelming desire to live, to survive and to not go to heaven. I did not want to go there in any way, shape or form. And it took me a really long time to sort of process the guilt I experienced feeling like I was a really bad Christian because I didn't want to go to heaven. And I think it's taken me a few years to realize the God that I believe in, a God who is a creator, a God of love, um, has given me love for my children and my husband and my life. He's given me love for life. And he's not really offended (laughs) that I didn't want to die, you know? And I think that has given me so much peace. But I will say, like, having an awareness of mortality makes life be technicolor. I totally agree with that. I think that the one quibble I have with the good place and this conception of the afterlife is a little bit of the absence of that other element of the creativity of life. Does that make sense? Mm. Like for them, the good place is all about pleasure. And what I see in God is a God of creativity. And so we will be continually working towards something in whatever the afterlife is. And my favorite theologian is my friend, Kelly Nikandeha. And she has this great phrase that really helps me sort of conceptualize what I think will happen after this life. And she says, you know, in, in the Bible, it begins in a garden. It begins with two people in a garden with God. And in the book of Revelation, it ends with an entire city. And whatever happens next, it's going to be a city, a complicated, busy, diverse city. That's what we know, where we are all working together towards the flourishing of every single person. That's awesome. And I don't necessarily think we need to step into a doorway and dissolve into nothingness. I think whatever that city is, it's it's going to be a real city. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, with creativity in that sense... There is a sense of, of never-ending projects. Yes, as generativity. Opposed, yeah. Whereas in the show, they come up with these lists like, well, here's all the things I wanted to do mm-hmm. in my life, basically. It, it is still a continuation of their earthly life. Uh, and there's not really kind of like new drama introduced. There's not really new characters introduced. I don't mean – in the Nobody show. has I mean, kids. Like, yeah. No one has kids. Right? I mean, that's like, wild. They live 300,000 years. You know, Jason gets his perfect Madden game on his 430,000th try or mm-hmm. whatever. But he, there's not like new people to play Madden with. Right. So there's something. And obviously it's the limitations of the show. Uh, but that is a difference between how they present it and a, a more standard. Well, I don't know if it's standard, but what I would consider a an interesting and viable Christian understanding of the afterlife. Well, and they're each one of them is living out their personal fantasies. Right. And again, I think a Christian concept of the afterlife is intricately tied to our neighbor. Yeah. Let's, um, let's, let's just make, let's just finish up on this idea, this spoiler idea of, uh, it's not good unless it ends. And then we'll click out of spoilers and, Okay. And go on from there. Crispin, anything to add on that? Yeah, well, this is something I have a colleague, another therapist next door uh, in my office who's also a Christian. So we've talked about, like, you know, we're spending our whole lives trying to get better and better and better at being a therapist. <laughs> and then, like, you know, presumably we won't need those skills. But then I'm thinking, like, 
and I've thought about this a lot, especially like just as I study psychology, God has created us in these amazing ways to solve problems. And so it doesn't make sense that we would be put in a place where there aren't problems. And I think there's like a difference between like problems or challenges and like pain and suffering. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I was listening to the Almost Heretical podcast recently and they were talking about how the, uh, you know, it is about reunification with God, but in the beginning, it was people and God ruling over creation, right? So there was work, there were things to do. And I think, uh, I mean, Danielle and I and yourself, like, for people that are inherently creative, like, just having the rest of eternity to work on whatever projects I want to do, like, that's actually really exciting. And it's hard to, I really liked what you said. I think if our imagination is, is limited to like playing the best round of a video game ever, then of course, and of course that fits Jason's character, but that's really boring. But if we have a broader imagination, I don't think it has to be boring. That's very well said. Um, I'm going to officially close this spoilers section. I'm going to make a note of the time for myself for later. And let's get into some of these things. Uh, you know, no promises that we won't give anything away about the show, but we will not spoil the ending, and mm-hmm. we will just mention the show as needed in sort of a general sense. Um, and so apologies if you have not started it at all, and then you feel like it's lessened by this. Uh, maybe it's a good time for me to talk about the experience that I had. Um, it's, it might derail us a little bit. And I'm also a little bit worried about messing with some of the beautiful things that you guys have said about the afterlife. But here <laughs> goes, because uh, we're all we're all friends here. Mm-hmm. So part of what was really tough for me, or I think, I mean, I'm really, it, it was just really raw. It was like just like a raw emotional thing. I felt really, like really dialed in. I felt very ill at ease. I was enjoying it at the same time, like the show, and loving how great it was. But part of it to me feels like um, the the fact that they – here's a good way in. We talked a, a little bit about there are uh, restrictions on doing a show like this because you have to have people acting. And so a theologian could come up with some very interesting schema for how the afterlife goes, but it would probably be very difficult to film that and write a script for actors, right? Um, so it ends up being this very anthropomorphized, human-centric afterlife. And one thing that I kept feeling is, like, this is exactly how I was taught to think of the afterlife, is, like, overly human-centric, super anthropomorphized. It's just like this life, except it's all the good shit. And, like, um, 
feeling a little bit embarrassed about that and feeling like wondering how much of my uh, healthy and helpful conceptions about God and the afterlife are really built on kind of shitty, shaky ground. And so that was kind of the part of it that felt like that was part of the existential kind of crisis feeling, I think, is like this show is so good that it has showed so clearly how stupid this was, or at least this aspect of it, of like heaven's just like awesome earth kind of a thing. Um, And that that shook me uh, in a way that I'm still kind of processing. So that's the first bit. I'm, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about that. Go for it. Well, I think that, again, like we all have to have those moments of being shaken up, right? Because whatever we were taught as children is appropriate for children. And then as we become adults, we're like, nobody knows. <laughs> right. Nobody knows. And so I think one thing that's helpful, especially if you come from more of like a biblical literalist tradition like I did. You know, my parents would never say heaven was like that. Heaven is these creatures with like a million billion eyes and a bunch of heads of lions and they're all singing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, you know. Uh, So heaven is like seemed really creepy when I was a kid, right? And um, but everybody I knew was going there. I was excited to go there. And then the second you meet someone who is not going there, I don't know that my personality is just like, well, then I don't want to (laughs) go. I actually told this to Crispin a few years ago, kind of like deep into my deconstruction. It's like everybody, all of my friends are Muslims. Like if they're not going to heaven, like I'm, I'm not going and I mean it. I mean it, Dan, you're smiling. I can see you smiling at me. It's sweet. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like, I'm just stupid little Danielle. And if I have that much love for my neighbors, like what is a creative loving God going to be like way better than me? We don't even have to get into it, but the good place conception of the judge is really fascinating. Yeah. As uh, a very spaced out person who doesn't <laughs> really care what happens. Yeah. So that's interesting. There, there's a kind of a deism thing there and very well played by Maya Rudolph for great comedic effect. Uh, I actually think that my wife and I recently started Justified because she talks about starting I've, the show. I've considered Justified. It. <laughs> yeah. It's quite good. It's it's good. Uh, it's good. End of the evening television. Um, I so for me, I've been a universalist since I knew I could be one. So it was never an issue of oh, uh, there's not gonna, the you know the wrong people are going to be there or something like that. Or or why won't why would God send all these people to hell while I get to go to heaven? I just never really. Once I was old enough to think about it, I just never really believed that. Uh, if I'm honest, and I found better and better reasons for that and and I found that my thinking about it has matched my earlier intuitions. Um so that one that's not so much been an issue for me but I I hear that. I hear uh I definitely understand uh, that aspect of it for you Danielle. So how can you be so blasé about it? Because honestly like still having a toe in conservative evangelical land it is like one of the litmus tests for uh, like faith. So so like yeah. People getting kicked out of Christianity Today, or you know, all these places. I don't if you work even for have any of those a, places. <laughs> but so I'm saying, like, this is still a huge deal for the vast majority of 
I would say American evangelical Christians. And, you know, I haven't read David Bentley Hart's new book or anything, but, uh, you know, I've read a few articles of his where he talks about the etiquette of hell, right? So we have sort of a double consciousness. Maybe I'm not using that phrase correctly, but basically we all have to believe in hell as one of the main tenets of our faith and the fact that the vast majority of people that God created will be consigned to eternal conscious torment for finite choices they made on earth. And yet we're never supposed to talk about it. So we have to believe it and that we can't talk about it ever in public or really with each other. In in polite society, but like you go to certain Baptist churches and they talk about it a whole lot, right? So it sort of depends on what, what uh, subculture you're talking about. But I've, but that's what's so weird. You know, we have attended for years these churches where the pastors wear skinny jeans and the worship's cool. And when you actually come down to it, if you don't, if you say you're a universal universalist, you're out. Like this is like happened you can't, to us. You can't serve or whatever. Yeah. And I also think that there are they make references to hell, but they don't discuss hell. Right. Yes. Because if you you can, of course, say like you can, you know, we're sinners that should be sent to hell that, you know, whatever. But that's a far cry from like discussing uh, the, you know, you could say the ethics or, or mechanics of hell. So I love that you were able to, you know, you had permission, if you will, uh, to <laughs> become a universalist. But I wonder if a lot of people still feel like they don't have that permission. And oh, therefore, sure. watching a show like The Good Place was a really uncomfortable experience. And that's some of the feedback I heard from people hmm. is it just brings up the tension we aren't really allowed to talk about. And that's actually why I love anybody who talks about mortality in any respect. I love music, movies. Um, I think that's kind of what they were getting at when how it makes life meaningful is grappling with mortality and the systems we've designed to say who's good and who's bad and who gets to go to paradise and who doesn't. You know, it really forces us to grapple with Every single big question we have. How do we live on Earth today? How do we think we all came to be? What is our purpose on Earth? So going back to that main question, I think a lot of Christians have just kind of checked out on all of those questions, and they just go on the path before them without really thinking through, what does this actually mean if I think all my neighbors are going to hell? Does that change how I vote? Does that change where I live? Does that change who I invest in? I think it does. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, I'll just say there's an episode coming soon that I interviewed uh, two sociologists who developed uh, the hell anxiety scale as a numerical Ooh. way of. Yeah. Crispin's <laughs> excited. Yeah, well, I think you'll like that one. And we get into a lot of that stuff. So maybe we I, we just won't now for just because that's yeah. coming within a month or so. Mm -hmm. um, but Crispin, something that came up in the spoiler section without spoiling anything. Uh, that you said that I really resonate with is this idea of like I don't want to I don't want my consciousness to ever end. So uh, at the same time that I feel I felt silly about an anthropomorphized heaven or something, I also have been aware for I don't know at least the last five or six years that I am terrified and and getting less so. I will say I'm getting less so, but I'm ter I have been terrified of non-existence of like. The light's really going out. I can't imagine that. It sounds like the worst thing in the world to me. I love existing so much, you know, uh, rage against the dying of the light, whatever. 
Um, can you talk a little bit more about your experience of that kind of terror? Yeah, it. I I think it's really it's really hard to imagine yourself unconscious right? Non-conscious. So I think that's even as you said, like the lights really going out, that's how I imagine it is just literally turning out the lights and I'm still there, which is, but really, yeah. What, what was interesting is something that I always get goosebumps whenever I talk to Eastern Orthodox folks. Um, and Brad Jerzak is one of my favorite Eastern Orthodox, um, guys. Uh, and what he said something, um, actually, I've talked to multiple people that have said something to this effect is in so many church traditions, we try to have a dogma about what happens after death, right? And I'm even thinking about in the show, right, what happens. And so really what um, what they would say is it's not about knowing what's going to happen. It's actually about trusting that God is love. And that's was like, right. And I was like, oh, <laughs> as this like anxiety comes up, I'm like, I guess that's the only thing that I, cause I can't know. And like the more that we've tried to like, especially like literal biblical, like biblicism has tried to like figure out the science of hell or right. heaven in the afterlife. It just gets worse and worse. Uh, so that I think is probably the best thing that I've ever heard is like, can I trust that God is love? And I think that goes back to something Danielle has told me before also, which is like a creator doesn't destroy their creation. Hmm. Well, I, uh, it's another reason I should probably become Orthodox. Uh, I love Orthodox theology. I cannot do the like women stuff and the, there's also a lot of weird politics stuff, especially in Eastern Europe, um, similar to what's going on with uh, prominent evangelicals and Trump and stuff, but uh, with Putin over there. Anyway, I love that. And that's where I'm at, actually, with the afterlife and have been for some time now. And it's it's really affirming to hear you repeat it back from Brad's perspective, also one of my favorite Orthodox people, uh, that like... I can't imagine it at all. And I want to talk – I want to get into this uh, some more later about – I think there's actually really good reason to really doubt that we can imagine it, um, like a lot more so than I thought. Well, it's something I can't imagine. Like I think there's even like some pretty good reasons to think it really can't be that much like this existence. And so it has to be then faith in God's character because if I – if I can imagine it, I can control it, and I can't imagine. And that's probably why I don't want to not exist because I have no control anymore. If I if I'm melding into the universe, or my atoms are just going to go feed some plants, or you know whatever it is, I can I have no control over that, and so that terrifies me. Yeah, and I think even what you were saying earlier about the show is there is an element of one of the characters bringing in more of an Eastern approach to death. You know, maybe we could say it's more collectivist. And when I hear yeah. you guys talking about this terror of losing consciousness, I don't relate at all. And in fact, I'm like, it would be lovely to not be worried about everybody. If I knew all the lights were going on everybody at the same time, that'd be fine. Like, hmm. I, you know, all those disaster movies that were like really popular in the 90s. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to be one of the few survivors. I would like to drown with everybody else. Like, that's <laughs> what I would like to do. And so maybe that's just more of this collectivist, <laughs> I don't know, experience of 
whatever happens, I want it to happen to all of us. And that's really important to me. And I think that's important to other people, um, but not necessarily the majority of Americans is what I'm going to say. Well, there, yeah, there's something really interesting there about, um, so this has come up because the, the, you know, the end times anxiety episodes are playing right now. And I'm also doing interviews for a follow-up series with baby boomers about why all of this was so plausible to them at the time. Like, why did we all learn that in the first place? Oh yeah. I'm getting some very proving, proving looks (laughs) from you guys on that. Um, surprised looks, uh, And, you know, escapism is part of it. And one of the guys I interviewed was doing missionary work in Eastern Europe, mostly in Poland, from the early 80s to the late 90s. And what one of the things he said was like, anytime we heard about this stuff over there, it was just American exports of popular American theology. But it never rang true with the Polish people that I was working with, because what would seem in America like, Oh, things are getting so bad. We're going to really be persecuted. God wouldn't let us suffer that way. So we'll be raptured before all this suffering for people who had just living through the dissolution of the Soviet Union. They're like, uh, God certainly lets people suffer like this. <laughs> We've just gone through it. Thank you yeah. very much for 40 years in our country, you know, or whatever for, I don't know, 70 years. I don't know the math exactly on the, on the Soviet Union. So I, I don't know. That's, that's. I know that's kind of your wheelhouse too, Danielle. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Did you have a question though? Well, I just mean I just figure anytime right. I leave, anytime I leave open space after something critiquing right. American exceptionalism, you'll you have stuff ready to go. Yeah. Well, our our brother-in-law Stephen, who was born in Sudan, right, talks about this a lot. So he's you know being in the states and hearing people talk about like terrible things happen happening. He's like. These things happen to me, you know? So why is it that because it's happening in the U.S. that it's the, en- the end of the world? Right. When it happens to Americans, then it's the end of the world is kind of how the rest of the world views yes. us mm-hmm. rightly, you know? Right. And I think that that is baked into the way that the average American sees their own country's experience and place in the world. We are exceptionalist and we are individualist, right? And, and so it's me and God. It's me and my Bible, but then we put all of us into a collective as Americans. Well, it's us and God, and we are at the center of the stage. That's probably true of everyone that is in a large enough country that 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 could sustain that kind of thinking. That's probably the way the Chinese people feel. Some Russians probably feel that way. You know, yeah. maybe not if right. you live in Luxembourg. You just can't get yourself to believe that. But uh, or British people during the empire probably felt that way about the UK. You know. I don't know. So yeah, but I if, think I think it really does directly relate to how we view the afterlife, how we view mm-hmm. ourselves in the world. So the Good Place is written by Americans. It's a very American centric show. There's so many quibbles I could have with it there, but you know what? I think they knew it, and I think they just ran with it. It's really interesting to think about. Just a little side note that Jesus, uh, you know, in the apocalyptic texts in the Gospels. He actually was doing that, like a lot of people think that he was doing that thing. Like the temple was going to fall and he talked about it as the end of the world, you know, but yes. it was, anyway, just. Well, that's, that's a really interesting thing. We, we don't need to get into it, but one way of interpreting all the quote, end of the world, unquote, passages in the New Testament is like, they're about the end of the nation of Israel and that temple. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. 
if you want to get more liberal, more critical, uh, text critical, you'll say, and that's in there because that stuff was mostly written after the temple was destroyed, and it's trying to explain the interactions mm-hmm. that Jesus was having with people, and now we're fully under Roman rule, and we don't have our temple anymore, or the Jews don't, you know, however people thought of themselves either as Jews with the Messiah or if they thought of themselves as something different. Mostly during those early texts, they probably weren't thinking of themselves as all that different from the Jews. Um, okay, that's a little nerdy. Yeah, I'm just, if Jesus did it, then we're allowed to. So. Well, and, <laughs> again, so like Jesus talking about the end of the world is the temple falling. And, you know, it really was the end of the world for a lot of people. Like all of Jesus' disciples, except one, was killed, right? Shortly Close to the destruction of all of that. Yeah. yeah and, and so, somewhere around there, yeah. so worlds actually end all the time. And, you know, I work with refugees, so this has been really brought to my attention too, right? It's it, the end of the world is happening in Syria right now. It's the apocalypse, you know? And it's not happening to me personally, but it's happening to people um, that I know and love. And I think, again, going back to the good place, that is an awareness of mortality that has infused my life with meaning. So, One of my huge deconstruction points is actually a point of conversion, right? Being in a relationship with people who are refugees, whose lives have ended, and they are making it here has has absolutely changed the way I live my life. So I think that's what The Good Place is getting at, is how do we live our life here and how our conceptions of the afterlife can actually make us be people who are on a trajectory towards being better be better able to love and, and honestly transcend some of the wounds that both the structures of the world and the people in our lives give us. So this is something I really would love to talk to you guys about. There's Let's a few, do it. There's a few different directions we could talk about. One is about people who wound us, right, and how they affect us and attachment trauma and all that. I know Chris wants to talk about that. The other one I, I do want to get back to is mortality giving life meaning, which brings up this question that I've been thinking about recently, which is, is death a part of God's design or not. So growing up Christian, you know, I always heard it's uh, because of the fall that people die and things die. And then there's this podcast I love with these two British guys and they talk to a scientist who's like, death is absolutely a part of life. Like death and decay has to happen in order for there even to be new life. Don't steal my thunder. Don't, oh, I'm don't sorry. take my answer. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, it, it rocked my world. You want to, you want to talk on that, Dan? I do, but let's, let's do the attachment people who heard us stuff first because okay. Crispin hasn't had enough time I know. on the mic and we're going to let him we're talkers lead, being you, Dan. lead off this, lead, lead off this topic. So, Crispin, what are your thoughts as someone interested in attachment, doing therapeutic work, someone's harmed us or they've harmed someone that we know, our conception of the afterlife either does or does not include them being there. Yeah, being, justice. Unquote, How does justice right. figure into this? Yeah. War, De- justice, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, there's there's so much there, but I think that, um, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing that... that comes up right is people are like well how you have to believe in hell because god is just and god is righteous and hitler right and hitler they always bring up hitler and uh i have suffered abuse in my life um and that is has not um on a relational level been resolved um but i can just say for myself i don't want that person to suffer eternally um and actually what I would like is an apology, which we see in the show, right? 
Um, and really, even as I think about couples work and couples um, where there's been an affair or there's been a huge breach uh, where, where one person has really hurt the other one, the thing that actually restores the relationship is that the person that's been hurt is able to say, hey, here's what this was like for me and actually express it and, and to see in the other person's eyes right that they get it that it that it means something to them that it lands right and they can turn back and see like you know oh my gosh this i see how much this hurt you and that impacts me so much right and then they can go forward um and brad jerzak again he talks about um he talks uh, with Jonathan Martin on the Zeitgeist podcast. He says, this isn't about like Hitler waking up in the lap of Jesus. What if Hitler has to go to every single person that he harmed mm. and understand and sit with the pain that he brought them? Um, and I think that's both. It's not that I want Hitler to be punished. I mean, I that's not my choice to, to make, um, to say that. But it's... It's a painful punishing process that leads to reconciliation, right? You actually have to feel that pain of the other in order to move into restored relationship and be able to move forward. And for some people, that is going to be just an excruciating process, but not out of like a punishing God, but because that's the way that you, it works. It's kind of natural consequences, right? right. In, a, in a cosmic sense. I think this is probably... You know, I've mostly been watching this show, enjoying it as a comedy and as like a philosophy and theology nerd, just like kind of blown away that someone could get away with doing something mm -hmm. this detailed yeah. in the stuff that I love and actually have it be successful and go for four seasons. But I think the thing that looking back on it, I will appreciate the most from a more value kind of a sense is like it really getting those things right. Uh, of course, it's. As my friend Sari texted me this morning as I was still processing it with her, she's like, Dan, you know, they're not trying to talk really about the afterlife. They're using the afterlife as a vehicle for talking about this life. Mm -hmm. And that's right. It's about forgiveness. Uh, another thing that she says that she loved about it was she's like, I love that a demon gets redeemed in this show. Mm -hmm. And that's like a pretty incredible theological concept if you want to go there. the the fallen, Can the fallen angels – over time and experience be redeemed, you know, or, or do they have to go in the lake of fire? And, you know, are it, it, it brings up a lot of stuff, but there is something really resonant about the show in terms of, yeah, people's, as you said, Danielle, people's wounds are actually really explored with their families mm -hmm. and whatnot. Uh, and those are, they're not glossed over. And that's kind of the thing that they each have to work through in their own storylines. That's just, I just love that. I and love that's, that about the show. Yeah, that's something that really uh, has got me thinking for a, a while now about. <clears throat> so the way that I grew up is that uh, you're saved through faith, right? And part of that faith is that you are actively walking with Jesus. If you're like, F you, I'm done, then you're not saved, right? It just, it doesn't work that way. If you renounce your faith. And so I've always thought like, what if... Uh, you know, what if my son gets killed and then I'm like, I walk away from my faith, right? 
Or what if, and I think about like people that have experienced a lot of trauma that already are primed to feel abandoned, right? And feel not good enough, right? And then, uh, you know, we know that that sets people up much at a uh, much higher likelihood of addiction, right? So then you're like, okay, well, I'm walking with Jesus, but what if I relapse? And what if I do a bunch of stupid stuff and then I overdose and then I die? And it's like, you know, what if at that point I've renounced my faith? And so it leads to this anxiety of like, I can never quite relax. And then as I was thinking about that, I'm like, who are the people that are most likely to not be able to relax? That is going to be the people with complex trauma. They're going to be the people that are going to be least feeling in control of their own lives and behavior. Because that's a lot often what trauma does is it. It makes you feel out of control of yourself. Right. Um, and I think that's even something that I felt before is like, oh my gosh, I feel out of con- Like, I know that I can't be good enough. And even though I've been told it's not about being good enough, there is still this little bar that's there. And so then yeah. what's, it really ends up, it's not good news for the people that have suffered most. It's not good news for the least of these, right? Right. And can I add a layer there? What? What role does that, well, if you backslide and say no, then I guess you were never in in the first place, or I guess you really aren't there after all. What role does that play? I think that the primary role that that theological move plays is it eases the conscience and the certainty need of the people who are still in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they can go, well, I know I'm still in because these are the rules. And so they will find that plausible because- it is to their benefit to find that plausible, but actually it's hurting the people who need Jesus the most, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And like, I was just, you know, really captured by Eleanor's storyline throughout the show. Cause that yeah. is, that's right there. Yeah, for sure. Well, Danielle, you want to talk about death and God's plan? I love talking about death. <laughs> that's why I love this show. Well, let's start with what the scientists said. Yeah, there is on this earth. Well, and this also ties into what I sort of hinted at earlier of, like, these reasons I, I think that are, are really good for, like, not thinking that we can actually really understand what the next season of consciousness would be like or whatever. Um, there is no life without death. I mean, l- at every level of biology, uh, from plants to brains to whatever, like, it it all has to do with limits, right? So... Some things stop beating and other things take the nutrients from the things that used to beat and then they get their hearts beating. I mean, it's like uh, there just there never was a time in history when organisms lived together and there was no death. I mean, even I heard someone say if you only added up the insects in like, you know, the first month of the garden or something like that, you know, uh, Adam and Eve would just be like wading through a river of insects they have to die and get eaten by other things like you just can't it doesn't last for a week much less 4.5 billion years since the earth was formed or something like 600 million years since they think that life uh evolved um biological life so am i are we just like destroying your your little childhood yes you are and in one sense, it is extremely comforting, right? To be like, okay, yeah. this actually is a part of the plan. It's actually essential to like being 
reborn to resurrection to regrowth to creativity to generativity um and i i like to think a lot about um sort of the horror stories that humans have created about immortality right it never goes well and if Mm. we think about how monstrous we would be if we never died and we live forever and how Mm. that would just lead to more suffering more oppression you you know what i mean and so i think like some of these zombie narratives are about that vampires i would say even like greek mythology greek gods like what does unchecked power and immortality give to people? It just leads to more yeah. pain and more oppression for already marginalized people. So I think it's really helpful to think through all that. I will say um, I'm not sure that would have been comforting to me when my heart was about to give out. Hmm. Right? Oh, this is natural. It doesn't feel natural. Right. And like when somebody's baby dies, that doesn't feel natural. And I don't think it is. Right. Well, there's a sense in which uh... – Death is obviously a part of the plan, but that doesn't mean that each and every instance of death is a part of the plan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and I think what, what about this Good Place finale, there was still this sense... Be careful with spoilers, though. I won't spoil it, okay. but it did bring up some of those questions of, is this the right time? This doesn't mm. feel like the right time for everybody. And I think I can really get with the whole scientists, insects... What would we actually turn into if we were immortal? Um, but saying goodbye to people that God gave us to love, I think, yeah, I just keep going back to, um, you know, I have two kids and one of them is nine, one of them is four, and my four-year-old still likes to snuggle. And sometimes I just think, like, I have no idea what's coming next, you know, after this world, but I think I'm going to remember snuggling with him, you know? Because it's such a gift that is not of my own doing. Therefore, I have to think, wow, I think these gifts are going to have to remain in, in some way. And so I think we're all trying to make meaning out of this. And we all do it in whatever way we can. But that's one of the things I've been thinking about recently is is memory and every bit of joy means something. I don't know. Does that make sense? Because of death mm-hmm. and decay. Because of all that, it means so much to me. Can it mean something forever is like a separate question. That's true. Right. And maybe that's just something I hold on to every once in a while. It's probably a mystery. I mean, it's certainly a mystery. We're not going to answer that. Mm -hmm. But we could think about it being plausible or not or something like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's always been these three historic Christian views of the afterlife, right? One is this eternal conscious torment thing, which became extremely popular in America in the 1950s because of Billy Graham that didn't always that wasn't always like the end all be all to Christian doctrine right there was also annihilationism where you you know your consciousness and everything is destroyed right unless you're saved and then you it's retained yeah right and then um universalism, universalism which has yeah. a different few different ways you can you know go about thinking about that um oh my gosh i totally lost my train of thought <laughs> You can there cut are this those up. three ways, can... Danielle. That's true. <laughs> Thank you for reminding us of the three ways. <laughs> so let me. This might be an okay time to bring in this this bit that I've been kind of uh, presaging. Um, is that how you say that? I don't know what word you're trying to say. P r e s a g e, like to foreshadowing. Okay. 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 I'm still kicking this around. It is something that I'm verbally processing here and there. But I think there's something to it. 
here it's kind of a worry that I have about any kind of confidence about whatever is next is like. I think that most of our experience of morality, of of having choices, and then those choices affect our character. So we in the human experience, uh, we see people make choices over and over again, and they change. So this people can become addicts, they can recover from addiction. Uh, people can become better parents. They can become worse parents, better friends, worse friends. Uh, this stuff is totally tied in with morality and uh, criminality and justice and all that stuff, right? The problem is that stuff is all – the biological basis for that stuff is the neuroplasticity of our brains. So our brains are such – they have a sort of a starting out configuration based on our genetics and – some various things that happen like in the womb and stuff. And then as we experience new things, as we learn one particular language and not another language, our brain will like prune stuff we don't need. It will fortify stuff we do need to speak that language with our families and stuff. And this is the same basis for other choices we make in, later in life. So if I am really used to cheating on my taxes every time they come around uh, and all these other little places I can sort of squeeze out a buck here and there, it's very hard for me to pay all my taxes. I have dug some trenches in these ways that I'm now rewarded when I do them the way I've done them before, and it's like painful almost to do it another way. But that is all, I mean, that's kind of based in the way our brains are, and our brains exist in this universe where the lion cannot lay down with the lamb unless the lion has just eaten another lamb because... There are a there is a paucity of resources, non-infinite resources. Death is part of life. So I am having a hard time understanding how I can have anything like choices, moral vision, creativity, whatever, in a world that's not governed by finitude, which is what causes all the suffering, is the finitude. So the sun only gives out so much energy. All the organisms are competing for the energy. Some of them are going to eat each other, whether that's animals, plants, whatever, insects. How – and like that's the, that's the foundation for everything I experience that is moral and will and all that stuff. So I'm having a hard time imagining and therefore controlling, I'll acknowledge, in my own head, like what could come after that would be anything like this if it doesn't have – neuroplasticity for instance this is a problem for me isn't there something more beautiful about a group of people with finite resources um learning to live together than everybody in their own suburban house with everything that they want hmm. so i mean you're kind of going with this assumption that they're actually there's this uh there's this Jewish parable that the Lord takes this man to heaven, or uh, I don't know where they go first. Takes him to hell, right? Um, and everyone has these long six-foot uh, spoons, and there's this bowl of soup in the middle. And everyone's trying to feed themselves in hell, and nobody can, and they're like all suffering and dying, right? And of course, they go to heaven, and they're feeding each other. Same exact setup... Uh, different dynamics. And I wonder sometimes maybe that's 
what is it's going to be like um, is it's not that all the problems are going to be magically solved like we were talking about earlier, but actually we have a new capacity to overcome the challenges. And I wonder about that too. Like you said, people can change for the better and for the worse. And I have this sense that there's going to be some sort of continuation, but there's going to be something that changes that actually allows us to, to continue to grow and heal um, in the ways that we already do, but that we won't do the, like uh, the other part of it is in your mind. Is that next thing? Like, is it physical in in some sense, is it non-physical? So if it's physical, is it like – I mean this is why a lot of like futurist theologians get interested in like transhumanism and stuff because in theory you could solve some of these problems uh, with the right technology and perhaps that comes thousands of years or who knows. But like – you know what I'm saying? Like, like even if for me to imagine, oh, I can choose rightly and I can heal. Like if I'm healing trauma, I'm – that's interesting. I mean, it's not all physical. Like my mind is comes from my brain, but isn't the same thing as my brain. It's really complicated. I'm I'm having a hard time processing it all. But like, do you envision it as like, no, you can rewire this brain without additional pain, or is it like your consciousness that arises from this brain will be ported over to a different kind of body? where it can heal. You know what I mean? Well, okay. So this is me as someone who stakes way too much on attachment. Okay. Um, but having secure attachment, right, is this basis that we can go through a lot, right? And so um, you can, you know, fight with your partner or your kid, right? But it doesn't, like, shake the bedrock. And so much fear comes from that part. So... I don't know. Part of me is like, what if we just, in a lot of ways, go through our normal life? I've talked with Danielle about this. And like, in a world without sin, that is also a world without forgiveness, which is one of the most beautiful things and a huge characteristic of God. So what, what if, like, what if part of what's coming next is that really what what is the biggest change is the sense that I'm loved as I am? Right. But we still continue to make mistakes or we still I don't know. That's that's my thought. I also I don't know much about this field, but I know that there are more and more sort of theologians that are looking at um, that we really are embodied beings. Um, and it's really a lot of other religions that are very much like we're just souls in a body. Yeah. Um, no, I was going to say, as you were talking, Dan, I just it made me think of. I love to be practical and think about what does this mean for our life here and now. And so I have really enjoyed uh, thinking about theology with the help of people who are fat liberation activists. And they're actually amazing for what they have to say about what it means to be in a body now. And I think that is something that thinking about mortality, thinking about the afterlife, it can be helpful for us to, to say, like, I don't know what happens next. All I have is this one body right now to experience the world and to receive the love of God. I mean, we can choose to not, I do it all the time. I honestly, only 1% of the time choose to believe that God loves me in this body as I am right now. If I could do 2%, oh my gosh, watch out world. You know what I mean? It's going to be <laughs> yeah. incredible. And so even thinking all these thoughts, I think that's fine. But in the end, like what we have is this, right? 
Well, I think I'm with you on that. Uh, and I feel like that's maybe kind of the existential crisis that I was partly having is like um, in some sense, though, like I, what I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the crisis was, because a lot of what I'm saying now, I, I've been thinking this stuff for a bit now. It's not it wasn't new to me last night, um, but something that felt new was like, oh, yeah, like I'm. A lot of this is built on a house of sand, mm. and this show managed to show me that, like, while making me laugh, in in like tear down what a hundred theologians or pastors or Bible teachers or whatever couldn't shore up with any real, you know, structural uh, capacity or whatever, you know. And so, yeah, like I think that's where I'm headed and have been headed is like. I just all I know for sure is this life and I can rest in God's goodness, as Crispin was talking about with the Orthodox thing. Um, And I and I think that I would agree that there's like a lot. There's actually a lot of bad stuff that comes in this world from people hyper focusing on the next world. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where we get a lot of, you know, we don't need to take care of the earth, uh, for instance, Mm -hmm. or we'll we'll teach our kids to be terrified of the rapture because. This world doesn't really matter. What really matters is that they are ready for the rapture. And then all this stuff will be nothing compared to that stuff. I remember um, and, being, yeah. yeah, super shaken reading ta Coates' book. And he talks about, like, you know, imagine a woman in the early 1800s, a black woman who's enslaved her entire life. Yes. And he's like, it doesn't matter to her that slavery was abolished, that Jim Crow laws were like, we, that's how we think of things is like in this broader scope, which, you know, helps us deal with that. Uh, but for this woman, that was her entire life. And of course he doesn't, you know, believe that, that um, there's another, you know, she has an, any other experience right. other than that. So this is my problem because one of my solutions, not solutions, but like, the way that I can think about the problem of evil and not lose my faith is that like, yeah, but God created a universe. Like, so God can do something else that makes that worth it for that woman in some way. But my neuroplasticity problem makes it sure seem like, well, we have like this brain is sort of where we come from. And like, if that woman didn't get her consciousness uploaded or something, you know, or something like that, like what where is her justice and if she doesn't get any is god just and is god really as good as i think god is uh and this is when i get these are my these are my biggest doubts is around stuff like that yeah people I, can't I, see this people can't see this cuz they're listening but i'm like leaning forward on the desk now <laughs> <laughs> and i think that you know talking about it in all these different forms like dan i really appreciate your you have a lot of intellectual thought behind this and Crispin is coming from a therapeutic standpoint. And I will just say that for me as someone who tends towards more activism and how can we make this practical? I also have found a lot of solace in mysticism and just saying, we don't know what's happening. Uh, I actually think Dallas Willard said something that really impacted me, which is none of us enters this world alone, right? We're all born from somebody and none of us will enter the next life alone. And I, I think holding on to little things like that can be really impactful. But I, I wonder if it's okay if I share like a mystical experience I had. Please Is that do. okay? So I actually write about this in my book that's, that's coming out in May. And I just don't know 
if people are going to think I'm a freaking heretic or not. In fact, they probably will. But probably not the listeners of my show. Okay. <laughs> but I mentioned, you know, having these near death experiences with the birth of both of my children. And the second one, um, I eventually was able to leave the hospital. My baby was three weeks old and super tiny. And then he had to go to the hospital for a meningitis scare. And it was horrible. And I my brain broke. Like, it just broke, right? And I just thought, I'm never leaving this hospital room. I will never let anything bad happen to this baby. I refuse to join everybody else. I'm just going to – I became like a mother bear, right? Just all instinct and just – I'll never let anything bad happen. But I couldn't sleep at night and I had so much anxiety and, you know, I was probably super depressed and my body still wasn't working right. And I just, I couldn't find any peace in any of the Christian sayings and any of the Bible verses people were texting me. None of it meant anything to me. And part of it really stemmed from what I was saying earlier, which I was terrified to die and terrified to leave uh, the world. And I really felt like I was almost digging my fingernails like into the soil of the earth. Like I'm not going to leave. And I felt like such a bad Christian. And then one day, one night I couldn't sleep and I either had a dream or it was like a vision. And I was in this room and it looked like a painting from like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or something. And it's this beautiful wooden table and there's all these bowls of like fruit and bread and cheese. And there's like all these people at the table and they're eating and they all look so happy. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. So I sat down and I started eating. And I realized like, oh my gosh, I know some of these faces. But where do I know them from? And I heard this voice, like this audible voice that that woke me up out of this vision or dream. And it said, in heaven, you will feast with those who have suffered on earth. And I woke up and I realized they were the faces of this group of refugees I had been seeing on CNN all week in the hospital while my son was hooked up to all these machines. And they were people who were on this boat and they were fleeing violence in Myanmar and no country would let them land. And they were like a a ship of the doomed, you know, a ship of people. Everyone in the earth had decided we don't care about them enough to do anything to save them. And those were the people in this vision. And I tell you what, like from that day on, I have not been afraid to die. And I know that's not logical. And I know that has nothing to do with neuroplasticity. But it's stuff like that where I'm like, maybe we need a bit of both, right? We need scientists. And then every once in a while, we need mystics. And and I would say mystics in particular are people who spend way too much time thinking about death. (laughs) Right? And maybe just having more of these conversations. This is why I love The Good Place. We are having this conversation. Well, I was... And I was really struck as we were talking about this earlier about like, you know, the neuroplasticity, plasticity. Um, and we actually know that healing of our brains from trauma can happen very quickly, right? It can, it doesn't often. Uh, but I was thinking about Jesus and all his interactions with traumatized people. And you just see that it was this really clear healing And I think about like mystical experiences I've had and I don't have those for like all the things that bother me, but I do think that God is a really good healer and he knows like what to do and how to heal those wounds. And I think when I look at Jesus, like that just seems to be what he does over and over. Um, So when I think about that, like, and I love thinking about God as a therapist, um <laughs> how convenient right <laughs> that's funny because i see jesus as having the miracle of getting communities to include the outcast 
you know you both you both see what you want to yes, see right yeah <laughs> but yeah i'm like yeah you know we'll show up with our brains but i think that that jesus knows how to heal them yeah it's so i i feel like i should say this there is a way of thinking about this that is intellectually rigorous as well hard it's you i don't know that you can prove it but it's possible that when a when brains get to a certain level of whatever complicatedness or you know i don't know what the word is um the type of mind and conscious experience that emerges from those brains that the consciousness is actually the main thing not the body that uh bodies get minds born in a sense and that really in that sense uh once we have minds we we participate in capital m mind um the the sum total of which or something like that is god or you know whatever there's different ways to parse that um that is another way of looking at this that that uh somehow our minds are connected to our brains and they developed in the right kind of way that those minds can change um but but there's also something that we take part in that is like capital m mind um and perhaps that's going into the ocean or the wave becoming a part back a part of the ocean or something like that or perhaps that's the way that our conscious memory and experience of ourselves does make it into something else um and and you know string theory you know, it's possible that there are other universes that are like not even just like this one has to die and then another one starts quote unquote but actually they're going at the same you know who knows right like it's a weird fucking universe so um i don't want to say that i know what happens or anything and i just want to say to danielle like i i'm not just trying to think my way through this yeah. uh i can't help but think about it but i also uh, as i think you know like my faith completely changed five or six years ago when i started doing contemplative practice and um uh, i came to a conviction then that i still hold which is that um self-giving love or just just real love and compassion like is at the center of the universe i mean as far as i can tell uh from my experience and so i you know there's something there that i'm holding on to um it is just i don't know there there's something difficult about recognizing more and more the biological basis as you're saying crispin brains can change pretty quickly people can be healed of addictions overnight people have aha moments that reorient their circuits in some way that they then they know that for the rest of their life and they never go back to the way they were right we all experience that kind of stuff um and yeah on earth with these brains in a universe where there's competition for resources um i don't yeah i don't know that i would ever want to live anywhere there's no competition for resources it would just be great to like actually do that well like you're saying like cooperatively Mm -hmm. that's the good stuff um and we're kind of back to the show i guess yeah have we done it should we wrap it up i think so i want to i want to kind of circle back and this is probably just going far afield and you can reel us back in dan but you know your your emphasis on sort of like the intellectual or our mind and will it be uploaded to a certain different body all this stuff you know i think it really begs the question you know what makes somebody human is it 
their brains because there's people born without functioning brains and their parents still love them, right? And they still have a, a body. And, you know, there's some Catholic theologians. Um, there's this woman, Amanda Martinez Beck, and, and she she's one of the fat liberation theologians that I love. And she says, you know, what is a body for? Like, what is a human body for? And it's to be loved by God and to be in relationship with others. And that's it. And we add so much more to that. And who knows what's going to happen with our bodies next. But I think those, if you, if you do a hold to that Catholic view of the body, it, it kind of helps a little bit with some of the angst maybe. And it also is much, it's so inclusive, right? It includes people whose bodies or brains, um, you know, are not normative. And I just want to say that because, you know, not everybody has a functioning mind, honestly. Yeah, there, there's no hard cutoff for like all the beings above this level of right. brain functioning. Right. I mean, it to to say that to what makes us special is that we can participate in this mind kind of consciousness thing is not to say that other beings are not loved by God. It's just a way of sort of describing like how physically it came about that I could pray, you know, yeah. like there is something biologically underlying the fact that I can have a prayer life. And that in my prayer life, I can communicate with God and have chemicals and hormones come into my brain and thoughts come by that I think are, you know, like there is something going on in my body in order to make that happen. Yeah. And that's not to put myself on a pedestal as, oh, I'm a high functioning human and this Down syndrome kid isn't, you know, nothing like that. Um, in fact, uh, there's some really interesting sort of stuff that I've heard some scientifically minded theologians talk about that like. We're not confident that other organisms that have less going on don't enjoy God quite a bit more than we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's actually very difficult to say about that, right? But like, yeah. how much fun does a rabbit have running around? Like, how much does that rabbit experience, you know, the pleasure of aliveness that God gives it? I mean, who am I to say, you know? Right. I mean, that's what I was thinking about is that in you know mental health and psychology we're leaning really towards mindfulness being present in the moment being present in your body and so many times our consciousness gets in the way of that so you know i mean there's i guess the flip side there which is interesting to think about yeah and that's where kind of co-creators language i think becomes really interesting i i think of increased like capacity conscious capacity as like sort of Equally, it's like a, a funnel. As you go up, you can have greater something good and you can inflict greater harm and you can feel greater pain. And uh, there's – but it's possible that like you take that funnel all the way down to the middle to uh, a lizard that has very much less. That middle might be really good until the moment that you get your head bitten mm-hmm. off by a snake, right, or whatever. That middle, that default creature state – might just be awesome, like quite awesome. And as people with all this capacity to be hurt, to hurt others, we can go so much, have such a worse life than a lizard and also such a better life than a lizard or alternate. And and like as we choose and mold things like cultures and churches and homeschooling our kit, whatever, we are co-creating with God actually all the time and but to your point, Danielle, 
we have to think about what we're doing right now in this world with this life as we are already co-creating. Are we doing it well or are we doing it shitty? Yeah. And I think like the show, The Good Place, is very much concerned with the central question, what do we owe each other? And I love that question. And I wish more Christians asked that question. And I think we should all pay attention to the fact that most prominent Christians in the United States are not asking that question. Well, it is made by a bunch of filthy Hollywood liberals. Right. (laughs) What do you expect? I know. What do we owe each other? They don't know Jesus. Um, (laughs) What a dark way. (laughs) We can't end with that. Me just slamming people. Any any final thoughts? I wanted to say that just thinking about you and Crispin and us talking about this, I think we are trying to live out some of what the good place is trying to say, right? Like we have considered our mortality. I think we've made it clear. We could probably talk for another hour and we should not do that because (laughs) people are bored. We have done this. We are doing it now. And we are trying to communicate and reach out to other people in our lives. I think both in our immediate families and then we all of us have some sort of way of trying to engage with the wider world. In a, in a sense, trying to save people, right? Which that's kind of what this last season of the show is about, right? The Soul Squad trying to mm. save everybody. So yeah. I just want to say I think it's all connected. Thinking a lot about death and the afterlife can have actual impact on how we choose to live our lives and and our neighbors. And I don't know. I've just found the show so inspiring and it gave me a chance to think through things um, in a deeper way. And it didn't make me like lose my faith or make me uncomfortable. It just allowed me, I think, some space to explore some of the tensions I already felt. And I know a lot of Christians felt uncomfortable with certain elements of it. And I guess that's just one thing I would like to say if you did feel tension, first of all, that's really normal, right, Kristen? Mm-hmm. When thinking about death. Oh, yeah, totally. And I'm pretty sure everybody who watched this last episode had to grapple with the concept of mortality. Yeah. Right? And that's important. And I think it's almost like a public service <laughs> that Mike yeah. sure did for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it just, the, you know, watching this entire show just made me think so much about justice and like what is real justice and we we sort of touched on it before but this idea of restorative justice uh you know is a theme throughout of like you know how do we and you know i think god is doing this how do we heal things how do we uh how do we heal everyone and even thinking about this i have a friend who who has a theory on death um that she says you know maybe it's actually through losing our ego that we live forever, right? So in the sense that rabbits, right? When we talk about the death of like a species of rabbit, we don't think about the individual rabbits. We think about like the whole. Um, And so, yeah, it's really interesting to think about like, what does it mean to, to use a, a biblical phrase, die to self, right? And then be able to see, you know, your part. Um, And actually Freud said this as well, um, that really focusing so much on yourself causes a lot of suffering. And so I love that the part of the show that these people that go from focusing on themselves to focusing outward and finding a lot of joy in that. Yeah, that's great. I just, I'll close by saying I did have a little kind of existential anxiety last night with the show. I do still think that in the end it will ultimately be good that I felt that. And I'm very much still processing through what it is. 
But this conversation with you guys has helped me do that. So thank you. And thank you to the many friends who texted or tweeted at us Mm -hmm. to get some of these topics in, in short order, to to do this emergency pod. Um, I'm not going to really have all the normal stuff here, so... Uh, you guys can find uh, these guys' lovely show, Prophetic Imagination Station, wherever you find your podcasts. And Danielle, your books are under DL Mayfield, mm-hmm. and the new one's coming out in May. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Thank you guys so much.